0: Scripture reading this morning is from the letter of Romans chapter six, the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For one who has died has been set free from sin Now if we have died with Christ We believe that we will also live with him We know that Christ being raised from the dead Will never die again Death no longer has dominion over him For the death he died, he died to sin Once for all and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ? Would you inform us but you, would you also form us and shape our hearts and lives in a manner that is pleasing to you and good? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most uh, remarkable things that we see or observe is when you, as you read through the New Testament, you see the change that took place in the lives of the followers of Christ. We talked about this a little bit um, not long ago, where, where the apostles that were not sure what to do after a resurrection, after a crucifixion, became new people with the dawning and the realization of a resurrection. It's remarkable. I mean, it's stunning, really, when you, when you see that story played out. Uh, as you read through the book of Acts, you begin to see this story. We're we're delighted that <clears throat> Mary was changed from someone that was ready to anoint the body with burial uh, fluids uh, to see the change that took place in her. We're delighted with that, but we are staggered <laughs> when you see the kind of change that took place in the life of the one who writes this letter today. Paul, you see, went from being enemy number one. That's really who he was as the church unfolded, as the story played out. Enemy number one. He went from being enemy number one to, the, to a leader of leaders in this movement. We're... We sometimes that gets lost on us. For those of us who have been around this story for a while, but when you consider and think about the radical change of the author of this text today, it's unbelievable. You begin to wonder, well, how does that occur? But even worse, sometimes the question becomes as I think about my own life, has it occurred? Has my life been altered? Or, or am I just familiar with a story that answers some questions for me and promises a future? Uh, I'm, I would have to say, as I'm guessing some of you would, that there are places in my life that are yet to change. It's why a a veteran pastor preacher (coughs) said about Romans 6 that we're going to look at today, he said, I'll preach Romans 6 when I understand it. (laughs) What he meant by that was when I understand enough of it that it's shaping me from the inside out and until then I have nothing to say to you. Well, part of me wants to say that as well. But it's right and good. There's enough in Romans 6 that there are handles here. And that's my hope, that as we walk through this together, as we, as we talk through it together, and I'll do most of the talking here <laughs> this morning, as we live this through together, that we come out with some handles that give us a way to understand what, what happened in Paul's life that God says happens in your life and mine. That's the hope and that's the promise, that what we find here. Is that there is the very real possibility of what Paul calls newness of life? These are the threads that I'm gonna try to nail down and we'll talk through um, as we get there. It has to do with my status, it has to do with a union that I need to understand. And that leads to newness of life. And between the two services, someone told me, oh, that spells sun." I had no idea. But here we go. It's a status that's a changed status. That's really what we're talking about here, what Paul wants us to understand, that our status is different. My status changed the day I got my driver's license. <laughs> Remember that? Some of you are longing for that, Maybe my status changed my status changed the day that I exchanged wedding vows my status um, may change when I'm employed or unemployed my status may change when I retire there are status changes that mark our lives and what Paul is talking about here what God holds in front of you today is a status change that makes all of those others pale. It's the most important status change that you will ever come to terms with. You see, it's, the, it's your status before a holy God as one who is unholy. It's really, to be specific, it really has to do with your status in relationship to what the Bible calls sin. That's the status that Paul has in view here. When I read these words like you do, that we are, uh, we're dead to sin, um, you know, I, I wonder about that because it doesn't feel that way most of the time. But what I want to propose to you is that if Paul is talking about behavior that we call sin, that the Bible calls sin, it's not all that he's talking about. In fact, I would suggest, after pondering this more than ever this week, I think, that he may be talking primarily about something else that includes behavior, but he's primarily talking about our status. And I say that because of what what we read in the surrounding passages. Somebody said that Romans 5 through 8 is the most glorious piece that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And what it means is, you probably should read Romans 5 through 8. As we step into Romans 6, it's like stepping into the middle of a symphony. Where in that middle of the symphony, we may hear some of the things that mark the beginning and that will mark the crescendo and the conclusion. But we step into Romans 6 with pieces of that story a story that in chapter 5, Paul says, and you'll know this, most of you, it was while we were what? Sinners. That Christ died for us. It was when our status was sinner. It was not that you get your life together and then God will do something with you, maybe. It was while we were sinners. It's while we were rebels. It's while we were... Clenched fist against the Holy God while we were sinners. That status. And that's the status that is now changed. That's why Paul says you're dead to that status. You're dead to it. It will show its ugly head. More on that in a moment. But there is a new status. He says in verse 3 that, that, that we were Baptized. And by that, he's not referring, in this instance, to anything that it has to do with water. But he's referring, it's we're all baptized. And in chapter 8, he makes that real clear. He says, all of you who are in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work. It's that baptism. It's that coming to faith that we will not. In fact, you wonder why I haven't yet or why it takes so long. It's until God lifts the veil that I begin to see the beauty and the glory of the gospel. To be born from above is the way the the Apostle John puts it in in chapter 3. Born from above, born by the Spirit. That's who has a new status. If you have truly come to Christ, you have a new status. You are indwelt by the Spirit. And there's a new relationship to sin. And it's broken. Paul says this body of sin he talks about the body of sin and he's not talking about what we're looking at as we walk around that was a problem that the gnostics developed and they said you know they get the spiritual things over here they're good there's the physical things over here they're bad that's not biblical that's not the right way and paul is not when he talks about the body of sin he's talking about the the body that is sinful he's talking about the person the soul that is sinful Um, He's talking about our sin-dominated body in this world. A body that is conditioned and controlled by sin. Oh, I recognize that. <laughs> and I'm guessing you do too. A life in this world that is dominated and controlled by sin. We know that one. But what Paul says it is to be done away with or brought to nothing is, is, what, uh, is the language here. But what he doesn't mean is that it's eliminated or eradicated. We still live in this body, but there's a sinful part of me and you that the language done away with or brought to nothing must mean and can only mean this, defeated, disabled, deprived of power. Kind of like that explosive device that's left in the streets. You've seen it on the 11 o'clock news or in the movie theater where the bomb squad is called in and everybody else stands back, a barrier is, is erected and the, co- and the coast is cleared for that operation, that careful operation of someone clothed with all the protective armor and helmet and the works moving in to, with hands, very delicately disengage a bomb. Paul is essentially saying that the body of sin, the power of sin, by the resurrection of Christ, has been disabled. The problem for me and for you is that we live in such a way that is still wired. That's why sin has such a powerful grip on my life, and I'm guessing yours. You know, when that bomb is disabled, it would be very easy to to wonder, really? Is it really safe? It, It... and, and until I'm really convinced that it's safe, I'm treating it like it is live and powerful. And that's the very way that I treat sin in my own life, that it is alive and powerful. And that pull of sin has such a magnetic and forceful grip that I, it is acting as if it is still wired I've got ruts in my life, patterns. The same people trigger certain responses. The same circumstances yield the same results again and again. And it's simply because, and this is what Paul is driving home, it's because I have failed to recognize that I have a new status in relation to sin. The power is broken and he says that we are, when he says we are freed from sin, the word can be translated justified. And that's true. One of the ways in which we are freed from sin is that we are justified. We're no longer under, under the penalty of that sin. But there's another sense in which while we are justified from sin, we are free from sin, we are also free from the pull of that sin. And that's how he's exhorting us to live and to recognize that the penalty has been played, but the power has been pulled. (laughs) It's been unconnected. And the power that it once had over me, the grip that it once had, it no longer has that grip. And yet I sin. (laughs) Go figure. The reason that we 'll undo this as we keep going is i 've got some relearning to do, as do you. Peter says it this way: he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, or as we heard read earlier, we who live are always being over to death for jesus sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And Jesus put it this way when he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a dying that I am to do to death in the realization that the power has been broken. And there's a death that occurs. So that at any given moment, I and you, all of us alive, are either obeying God or we are slaves to something else. And there's no middle ground. We are either alive to God, dead to sin and alive to God, or we're obeying the slavery of something else. There's a lot of good things. And we've talked about this repeatedly here at Cornerstone. The problem is not desires, it's ultimate desires. It's those things that control us and enslave us that look so good. They're so plausible. And yet they're so powerful. And what Paul is calling us to see, the power of that over you has been snapped. And you find life when you recognize that and step forward. A change status based on what? It's not based on a piece of paper. It's based on something bigger. It's based on, and this is the second point of our time today, it's based on a union that some people have called a cosmic union. It's not a word I use very often, but I probably should. He's pointing to the reality that this union is bigger than we can wrap our minds around, that there's a union we're united with Christ uh, Paul says here something that's outside of our categories. So let's add a category. It's called union. A union with Christ. We've been become united with him in the likeness of his death. There's a union between Christ and Christians. So that what happened to Christ is counted by God as happening to us. The word Paul uses is an agricultural word. There's... a There's a planting and a growing together of two things, kind of like maybe the plants and the weeds in your garden, but in this case, two plants. (laughs) The life of Christ and your life are so wed together, there's a a growing together, they become one, and there's something lovely and beautiful for you and me to understand there. That's the new category that, that... I have to add to my life. There's a union with Christ. I'm united, as hard as it is to really understand, I'm united with him in his death and in his resurrection so that his death is my death and his resurrection is my resurrection. But the main point of this verse 5 here, where we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be like him in the likeness of his resurrection is that our dying and rising with Christ is owing to that union with Christ. That's tremendously important. If it's not a common part of your thinking about yourself and your relationship to Christ, add this to your mental framework. Paul used that little phrase, in Christ, 73 times. And that's what we're talking about here, a union with Him. There's a... There's a, there's a puzzle to unravel, though. Is the resurrection past, as Nate mentioned earlier? Is it only future? No, there's something now. And that's what Paul wants us to grasp right here. The, the Jews of the day understood that there would be a resurrection. That was not new news. In fact, the story went that one day there would be a, a resurrection that included everyone. And that day would be at the end of time. What was news, and what they were scratching their heads over, and the disciples failed to grasp initially, was that Jesus was raised first. And Jesus raised here at a point in time was a part of your resurrection as well. So that we have a resurrection that we look forward to But there's a resurrection that we need to look at now and understand. And somebody put it beautifully like this. That the certainty of our future resurrection means something for our lives right now. And what does it mean? It means this. That through faith, through faith we are to live now on the basis of what happened in the past. As though we were already in the future. Let me say it again because this is this is key through faith we are to live now on the basis of what happened in the past as though we were already in the future so for example let's suppose that the language of heaven the language that we will speak in heaven one day is french some of us are in trouble the three years that I had in high school probably won't cut it but what it would mean is if I'm going to live now in the present as though I'm in the future I'm learning French and you're learning French and when we come here the sermon is in French and we're singing in French, Greg we've got to redo this we're we're rewriting the script because we're singing and speaking the language of heaven now That's what's getting it. But you know what? I don't know what the language of heaven will be. It's probably not French. But it's love. That's the language of heaven. And what it means is, if I am stepping into this union with Christ and this changed status, that I'm going to live now in light of then. I'm living today as if I'm in the future. I'm speaking love but I'm also speaking righteousness and I'm speaking and I'm living holiness and that becomes the aim of my life to live now as I will live then. A little bit like a dress rehearsal except how well we rehearse doesn't determine whether we make the team. (laughs) That's been determined for us. It just makes sense if that's the team, if that's where we're headed, if that's what God, this whole creation is all about the stage for, for the, the arena for the display of God's glory that will be in all its fullness in heaven. Then I want to bring parts of that into my life today because that's where we're headed. And what Paul says, that's what I want to see, that's what God intends. That we live in this world as a colony of heaven, as heavenly formed, as heavenly informed, and as pointed in a godly direction as we can in this world. You see, a change status based on this cosmic union may lead and will lead to newness of life. That's what he's saying here in verse, six, in, in verse 4 of chapter 6. It's these things are before you. We've died to sin. All the, we've been raised with Christ that you may, that you might walk in newness of life. It's a real possibility. It's a real opportunity. It's really before you. It's actually an imperative where Paul in verse 11 says this is something you must consider. And when... When I read in the words of the New Testament something that I must do, I get out my highlighter. <laughs> or I circle it. And I say, well, I'm not there yet. How do I get there? How do I do? And he tells us right here what it is that we must do. What we must do is consider. Or an old language, some of the old versions say, reckon that's not a word we use too much my grandparents in east tennessee did they reckoned everything but paul says reckon consider and it's, a, it's an accounting term it says do the math add up the story to see what's there it's it's a column of numbers like money in a banking account and some of us get a little nervous middle of the month or the third week of the month to even look at our bank account wondering what's there But what Paul says, no, look at the the account. Add this up and see what is yours in Christ. By the resurrection of Christ, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God. Reckon that. Add it up and then live in light of what is actually true, what's really in the account, what's really true about you. And the things that are most true about you are not those things that cling to you and that enslave you. They feel very real. But the things that are most true about you are written in heaven. They're written on the palm of God that says, you're mine and I am yours. Those are the things, friends, that are most true about you. And when that dawns on me, when I reckon that, when I consider that, I realize there's more to this than I have paid attention to so that it's really possible to live a new life, newness of life, and to no longer let sin, Paul's word is, reign, control. Francis Schaeffer said, Paul is not saying that you're ever going to be perfect in this life, but there's an overwhelming difference between failing to be perfect and letting sin reign in your life. In most of the choices we make, we are either yielding to the power of Christ or we are letting sin reign in our mortal body. You know, these last this last little section of Romans includes a word therefore. It's the kind of what we do. It's this living into our new identity. It's taking on this newness of life so that so that it can be said that there is no that sin has no dominion over me, over you. There's this fascinating little picture in in Genesis chapter 4 where we read that sin is crouching at the door. But then the instruction is, but you must master it. Sin crouches at the door, but you must master it. In a sense, what Paul is doing here in Romans 6 is saying, yes, there is sin that is crouching at the door, but its power has been broken And you no longer have to to yield to its power. But the fact is, I do. And you do. But there is one. There is one who, by his death and resurrection, not only broke the power of sin, but he mastered it. He never gave in. And it's that righteousness, that record that is given to you. And that's why Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under law. Law will not change you. Instructions will not change you. Guilt will not change you. But grace will transform you. It will transform you in such a way that that law that has shown you your, your inabilities now becomes the roadmap of what life is meant to be in this world. Gerald May was a psychiatrist and an addiction specialist. During his lifetime, he worked at Andrews Air Force Base, and then the state prison system mental hospital in, in Maryland. And in his life of, of service, he saw many lives who were under a power in and in a, in a, an enslaved to various things. You know, where does our mind go with addiction kinds of things? Well, drugs, alcohol, sex there's all kinds of things that have that kind of grip in our lives. He defined addiction like this, it's a state of compulsion, obsession or preoccupation that enslaves a person's will and desire. It's really what the Bible says about sin. So he was right about that. He said again something that the Bible says that as I mentioned earlier, the problem is not desires, it's inordinate desires. It's desires on steroids that are out of control. But, it, but as he surveyed and summarized his work in the prison system and on an Air Force base and on a mental hospital, he said There's, there is one thing in the universe that is more powerful than addiction. It's grace. And it's the experience of grace, not the idea of grace. For some of us who are still wrapped in compulsions, obsessions, and preoccupations that enslave our our desires and our wills, it may be that grace is an idea, but is yet to be an experience. Because when, like the Apostle Paul, you experience grace. When the blinders are lifted and you see, oh, it's not about me and my performer and it's not about my righteousness. It is about a righteousness that is given to me freely, unearned, undeserved. That has transforming power in my life. So that those things that... Present themselves to me as false ways of living, as shortcuts, as desires gone wrong, they begin to lose their grip. And back to our analogy, it's as if someone walks in and undoes the wires. Grace does that. Grace undoes the wires of those things that control you, of those things that you cannot live without. Grace undoes those so that for the first time in your life, you can enjoy a good gift without it controlling you. And you can enjoy the good things of this world without them becoming idols. But until grace undoes the connection, (laughs) we give our lives to these things and they've got a grip over us that will not let go we have to <clears throat> so if there are ch- if you're not changing in ways you need to change it's not because you lack the resources it's because the resources are yet to be deployed you're not remembering who you really are you're not conscious of a new status of a union with Christ and the newness of life that God lays in front of you and says come Come out of the weeds, come out of the darkness, come out of depravity, come to me, and you're going to come bruised and battered and dirty, and you're going to fall, and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to renew you, restore you, remind you of who you are, and in that reminding, in that relearning, we really have to relearn our identity, and we relearn our identity around this table. Augustine got it. Augustine watched this. He, he was around the fringes. He, he, and then God broke into his life, and he began to be altered and reoriented. He was converted by reading a passage of Scripture. God broke in, and his life was different in a moment. It's not that he didn't sin. It's not that he wasn't tempted. But he had a new identity, He recognized a new status, a union with Christ, and the newness of life that God had called him to, so that the problems that had marked his life were still there. Augustine, you see, had a problem with sexual control. He was converted. And the story goes, attributed to him anyway, that on one day he encountered a former mistress who exchanged glances with him and he continued on his way. And when she watched him walk away, it dawned on her, maybe he didn't recognize me. And so she followed up and got in his eyesight and said, Augustine, it is I. To which he said, yes, I know but it is no longer I. It's the kind of change that grows out of a changed status to sin. The ability to say no. The ability to walk away. A change that is a result of a union with Christ. United with Him in His death. United with Him in His resurrection. And and that has bearing on my life today and it's called newness of life it's what God lays before us not anything we earn or deserve it is a gift and that is transforming it is life altering it is sin diffusing and it is yours and so while we still sin in this world we come to one who was sinless, whose sinless record is given and granted to you. Wrapped in that righteousness, we come to his table. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would meet us, that you would shape us from the inside out in ways that are life-giving and life-forming. Do that work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.